0: This is episode two in the series on Frank Canton. If you have not already listened to episode one, you may want to do so now. Link in this episode's description, show notes, whatever you want to call it. Last week, we discussed Canton's start in Texas as a cowboy turned outlaw named Joe Horner. His many escapades and arrests leading to a prison conviction. We talked about how Joe escaped prison and then made his way to Wyoming, reinventing himself as Frank Canton, purveyor of law and order. Today we'll take a look at Frank's time as a lawman, and his next gig, yet again with the WSGA, as well as the build-up to the very controversial Johnson County War. The name Nate Champion, ring a bell? How about Tom Horn? Without further ado, let's get right down to it. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Now that Frank Cannon was sheriff of Johnson County, he would have to resign his position as WSGA inspector. But that's okay, he's already firmly in their pockets at this point, and with Frank in such an official capacity, the WSGA was confident he'd be relentless when it came to cattle rustling and horse theft. And boy was he. Matter of fact, Frank was so successful at apprehending rustlers that he had to strengthen the county jail. I found this very amusing as he himself broke out of the clink more than once. I mean, if anybody knew how to make an escape-proof jail, it was Frank Canton. He constructed a stockade around the building itself, purchased handcuffs, shackles, even had a couple of steel cages installed. As such, Frank never had one prisoner escape from his custody. Actually, I take that back. Uh, I should say nobody ever escaped from his jail. There was one prisoner, however, who made a getaway under mysterious circumstances. A man known as Roach Chapman. For some strange damn reason, Mr. Roach asked for a change of undergarments, so Canton took the inmate to his own home and left him there, alone, to change. Presumably into a pair of Frank's own long johns. Not making this up. When the lawman returned, Roach was gone, riding off, quote, well-armed and on a valuable horse, end quote. And what I can only assume were fresh drawers. Sounds kind of fishy to me, but evidently at the time, nobody cast any suspicion on Frank Canton. I mean, other than this, he was doing one hell of a good job. Just as the WSGA anticipated, Cannon quickly gained the reputation as a resourceful and relentless pursuer of criminals, namely the ones of the cattle and horse thief varieties. Hell, in the four years the Frank was sheriff of Johnson County, he'd end up sending 16 men to prison, 14 of whom were convicted of stealing horses. And he only hanged one man, a murderer that called himself Bill Booth. Booth, real name John Owens, had killed an old German fur trapper he was staying with. Depending on your sources, Owens either filled the trapper full of lead and caved his head in with an axe, or he strangled him first and then caved his head in. Either way, the trapper was dead as dead can be, and Booth had to pay. And unlike some of the hangings we discuss on this podcast, this one went off without a hitch. Now Frank wasn't really getting into a lot of shooting scrapes as sheriff. None, in fact, that I could find. Famed author Owen Wister, the guy who wrote The Virginian, upon meeting Canton, said of the sheriff, quote, he does less shooting than any other officer in his position, but is feared by all hands, end quote. Canton did indeed have nerves of steel, and he was apparently a very intimidating figure. When Canton got his still gray eyes on a man, that settled it, said one Johnson County resident, further stating, quote, Sheriff Canton rules the boys with an iron hand, and it carries a lot of weight, end quote. Some of the more notable bandits that Frank apprehended during his time as sheriff included Jim Cummins. Not really a household name nowadays, but Cummins was a member of the James gang, going all the way back to the Bloody Bill Anderson days. Jim's sister was actually married to Bob Ford, the dirty little coward who shot Mr. Howard, a.k.a. Jesse James. Now, evidently, Cummins was hiding out in Buffalo, Wyoming, the same way that Frank Cannon was, just laying low under his assumed name and, in Jim's case, as a humble, quiet shoemaker at least until Canton arrested him. He also arrested the infamous Teton Jackson, real name Harvey Gleason. This bad boy led a loosely organized band of criminals out of Jackson's hole and was by all accounts a pretty mean character. Once in prison, old Teton wrote Frank a letter saying that he held no ill will against the lawman and if he could spare 20 bucks, he'd appreciate it so he could purchase some tobacco. Feeling generous, Frank went ahead and sent the man the $20. And this wouldn't be Canton's only act of kindness while sheriff. Maybe this stems from his own days as a prisoner. You know, maybe his own time behind bars aroused a little empathy. I don't know. When he arrested two young Arapaho boys for killing cattle that weren't theirs, Frank worked it out so that they received light sentences. As the prisoner sat in the Johnson County Jail, the wife of one of the young men would frequently visit, and she was put up in the Canton home as a guest, becoming good friends with Frank's wife, Annie. Oh yeah, that's right. Frank got himself hitched. I forgot to mention that. Shortly after getting re-elected as sheriff in November of 1884, a then-35-year-old Canton entered into holy matrimony with 17-year-old Anna Mae Wilkerson, the daughter of a local rancher. Now remember, Frank had that nearly 500-acre plot of land, but the only dwelling on it was a little rickety shack that he himself rarely stayed in, instead having someone else live on it so that he could retain his homestead and status. While Sheriff, Canton boarded in town in a little cottage in the courthouse square. This would be where he and the new Mrs. Canton would take up residence. And it's where they hosted that young Arapaho gal when she'd come to town to see about her husband. In December of 1885, Frank and Annie would welcome their first child, daughter they named Ruby. And financially, the Cantons weren't doing too bad either. Per 1885 tax records, in addition to his ranch, Frank owned three town lots there in Buffalo, four horses, a carriage, $250 worth of furniture, and musical instruments valued at $25. I have no idea what the instruments were, but in my mind, I'd like to pretend they were two bagpipes and an old didgeridoo. I'll let you come to your own conclusions. Beautiful music notwithstanding, Frank's time as sheriff was coming to an end. Despite him being such an effective deterrent against crime, the citizens of Buffalo soon grew uncomfortable with Canton's pension of only working at night. And while it's true that cattle theft had declined, there were still people coming up missing in Buffalo only to be found days later dead, their lifeless bodies completely drained of all blood. Where was Frank Canton when this was happening? Can anybody vouch for him? Why did he cross the street anytime he passed by the churches? Or any other building, really, that prominently displayed a crucifix? Why, if he ever came out during daylight hours, did Canton always wear dark glasses and act as if the sunshine was painful? Was Frank Canton a vampire? I don't know. Probably. Probably. I can't prove it one way or the other, and uh, you can't either, so let's just chill with the judgment. And if you're confused right about now, sorry, that's just a little inside joke from last episode. Frank stay at the so-called Bat Cave, a jail in San Antonio. I'm almost positive Frank Gannon was not a vampire, alright? But in the full spirit of transparency, I can't say that for certain. So let's just keep the speculation at a minimum. Alright. No, uh, the truth is that public opinion was quickly turning Against those powerful ranchers who ruled Johnson County, and Frank was having a harder and harder time getting convictions. He could arrest horse thieves all day long, but once they got into a Johnson County courtroom, the jury would let them go. Guess that whole thing where they blacklisted anybody they didn't like and tarnished them publicly as rustlers didn't sit too well with the general public. And seeing as how Frank was a known WSGA man, it became apparent there was no way he could run and win a third term as sheriff. The people just weren't behind him. As such, when his second term ended towards the end of 1886, Frank moved his little family from the cottage in town out to his ranch, where he finally had a nice home built. And surprising absolutely nobody, he went to work once again for the WSGA, this time as a detective. His territory was massive, just like when he was an inspector, this time covering the whole of Johnson and Crook counties, as well as the upper parts of Laramie, Albany, Carbon, Unita or Unita, and Fremont counties. Now, if you look at a map of Wyoming, these counties are not all connected. For instance, Crook County is way up in the northeast corner of the state, bordering Montana and South Dakota. Whereas, United County is like 500 miles away in the extreme southwestern corner of Wyoming, by Utah. Once again, it looks like Frank would be doing quite a bit of traveling. He was given a U.S. deputy's commission this time as part of the job, and the freedom to do his work in whatever manner he deemed appropriate to fit the circumstances. And if you're wondering what quote-unquote whatever manner means, well, I'll let WSGA Secretary Sturgis explain it in his own words. When another detective reported several armed men in a certain location who bragged that they would not be taken alive, Sturgis wrote back, quote, If necessary, you may carry out your plan of killing them all and then arresting them. I do not think they will be a loss to the community. End quote. And no word on whether or not Canton employed the method of killing first and arresting later, but he certainly took a lot of living criminals into custody. He traveled all over Wyoming during 1887, even as far away as Utah and the Dakotas, pursuing wanted men and chasing down leads. But then the great blizzard of 1887 hit, wrecking absolute havoc on the entire cattle industry. This is really a big deal. 16 inches of snow covered the northern Great Plains, with some areas dropping down to 50 below zero. Per an article I found in Smithsonian Magazine, this accounted for millions of dead animals or 90% of open-range cattle. 90%. There were so many dead cows that that year's roundup was ironically referred to as the die-up, as the snow melted and the ranchers began taking stock of their losses. Many an Outfit went bankrupt during this blizzard as others simply cut their losses and moved back east or back to Europe, swearing off the cattle business entirely. And seeing as how the WSGA was wholly funded by prominent cattle ranchers, who were now going broke, they started cutting expenses. First, Frank Canton was asked to take a reduction in salary, and then, by December of 1887, the entire detective bureau was dissolved. Money aside, this probably was also due to the WSGA detectives having the same issue that Frank had when he was sheriff. Despite his initial success, it was getting nearly impossible to obtain convictions in the courts of law, even outside of Johnson County, with the rising tide of public sentiment against them. It was further exasperated by something called the Maverick Bill being passed, named by some as one of the worst pieces of legislation ever inflicted on the West. If you'll remember, the whole thing with Maverickin was branding unbranded cattle. All them new cows that would be discovered come roundup time. It was nearly impossible to know whose herd these cows originated from with all the cattle just roaming free all winter. And we're not talking about a situation like nowadays where everybody runs their cows on their own fenced in land. There in Wyoming at this time, everyone just let their herds roam free on public or federal land. Matter of fact, if you did have the gall to string up some barbed wire, you'd likely draw the ire of the WSGA, who considered all that land, even the land that you filed the deed on, theirs. Now, with this Maverick bill passed, the act of Mavericking was illegal. The cattle barons dug in and continued the practice of labeling anybody who opposed them as rustlers, so much so that the term actually became a badge of honor among the smaller operations. Also, this bill made it to where all unbranded cattle were now property of the WSGA. Imagine that. If you wanted to purchase them, you could do so at auction. Only problem was that the WSGA had the power to approve or deny your brand. And boy, oh boy, did they love denying new brands that the small ranchers tried to register. And if you were blacklisted, as many people were, good luck even purchasing these cows at auction. Frank Cannon would continue to work as a detective until the end of March and then transition back to being an inspector. And I'll be completely honest, I do not know the difference between these two positions, as he would still be investigating stock theft. Now, the last time he was an inspector, this called for him to have a deputy sheriff's commission in order to make arrests. Since the WSGA was now so unpopular in Johnson County and the current Johnson County sheriff, guy with the super cool name of Red Angus, was a man of the people and opposed the WSGA, Cannon was finding it very hard to obtain this badge. He did, however, still retain his commission as a U.S. deputy marshal. I was a little confused here. I uh, still am, I guess. Not sure why he didn't need a deputy sheriff's badge as a detective, but as an inspector, he did. Also not sure what he couldn't do with his commission as a deputy U.S. marshal in regards to his inspection work. Uh, the only difference I can tell is that it would affect Canton's income. Sure, he was technically a deputy U.S. marshal, but for whatever reason, federal work was slow in coming to the territory. And I guess due to his association with the WSGA and his inability to get sworn in in Johnson County as a sheriff's deputy, he couldn't earn a living doing local law enforcement work either. So Frank just began focusing more and more on his own ranch. And in August of 1888, he and Annie welcomed another daughter, Helen. Not long after her birth, Canton would be bedridden for weeks suffering from a severe attack of inflammatory rheumatism, an autoimmune condition that happens when the immune system attacks the tissues in the lining of your joints. This condition, oddly enough, would only pester Frank for a few years. He'd have flare-ups off and on, so much so that he was even rumored to have had tuberculosis. But after around 1892 or so, it seems that he was completely free of this infliction. Which makes me wonder... Was it really inflammatory rheumatism or somehow garlic-related? Did a lichen place some sort of a garlic necklace around Frank Kenton's head that put him out of commission for a while? Or maybe spike his whiskey with holy water? I can't say, and we'll probably never know. But still, the man had a family and he had to earn a living. Once he was back on his feet from this air quotes, arthritis, he responded to an advertisement ran in the Bighorn Sentinel, which offered a $1,500 reward for the conviction of anybody stealing, unlawfully killing, defacing, or altering the brands of cattle and horses. Frank immediately began investigating, and soon enough, he had a case built against six men, securing indictments and all that jazz. But he wasn't going to get no reward money just for indictments. These men needed to be convicted, and that just wasn't going to happen there in Johnson County, guilty or not. The cases against all six were soon dropped altogether. So, as it stood, by 1889, the WSGA, as an organization, had failed to protect the interest of its members. So now the ranchers were putting up reward money for convictions, but these convictions were being laughed away in the local courts. Guess the only thing left to do was to start killing motherfuckers, which is basically what they did starting with Jim Averell and his probably wife, Ella Cattle Kate Watson. The two were taken from their home, trussed up, and summarily hanged, their bodies left for the vultures. Word quickly spread that this was the doing of some of the prominent cattlemen from Carbon County, but strangely enough, witnesses began dying and mysteriously vanishing. Uh Uh-oh. Now, if you're a student of the Old West, you may have seen a photo of Ella Watson, a.k.a. Cattle Kate the one with her on horseback in a dress with a bonnet on top of her head. I've seen it many times over the years, and it always comes with the caption labeling her as a female bandit. Story goes that Ella was a cattle rustler of epic proportions, a prostitute and just an all-around low-down dirty bird of a woman. A Dr. Charles Penrose, who was a participant in the upcoming Johnson County War, described Ella as, quote, a cowboy harlot who took her pay in stolen cattle and yearlings. She is without shame, has a vile tongue, and had to be killed for the good of the country. End quote. Killed for the good of the country. Interesting. Said to be just as good with a gun as she was with a brand and iron, Watson was described in one encyclopedia as recently as 1977 as, quote, A notorious prostitute who prospered by establishing a bawdy house in Sweetwater, Wyoming, where cattle was the medium of exchange. End quote. And it turns out there's a good chance that absolutely none of that was true. Things had finally come to a head between the small ranchers, the free rangers, and the large cattle barons. With local law enforcement and juries refusing to convict any rustlers, these big ranchers were now simply just taking the law into their own hands. But why kill Ella and Jim? The Canadian-born Watson got married at the age of 18 to what turned out to be a physically abusive drunk. She obtained a divorce five years later and found employment as both a cook and maid, working in Colorado first and then Wyoming where she met Jim Averill. Also born in Canada, Averill's family migrated to the United States when he was young, and by the time he turned 20, he enlisted in the Army. He ended up doing a 10-year stint, attaining the rank of sergeant. And it was as a soldier that Jim came west, helping to chase Native American war parties and protect the construction of outposts and telegraph lines. He mustered out of the army, got married, and started working his own little homestead there in Wyoming. Sadly, though, both his wife and their premature baby would pass away. Heartbroken, Averill then sold his homestead, probably couldn't live in a place with so many bad memories, and filed on another, some 15 miles away. And over the next few years, Jim Averill would make massive improvements on this land, building irrigation ditches, a fence, a nice vegetable garden, along with a log cabin, As time went on, he was appointed as Justice of the Peace, a notary republic, and even a postmaster. I don't know about you, but so far, this guy is not sounding like some sort of degenerate rank outlaw. In February of 1886, he met Ella Watson, and by the next month, the two had obtained a marriage license. Although, it is not known whether or not they ever actually legally married. Some say they did, but there's no official record. And Watson would keep her maiden name. The speculation is that this was due to them being able to file on even more land if they weren't married. Weren't long before they had four land claims between the two of them, and Ella had her own brand for her own little cattle herd. The couple even adopted an 11-year-old boy. So not quite the pair of monsters that they're made out to be, right? According to a teamster who made regular stops at Jim's ranch, quote, He was never accused of cattle stealing. Another, speaking of Ella, would say, quote, she was a very pretty woman, and I can say I never seen a thing wrong with her or a bad move from her. Quote. More than one traveler spoke of being fed and given coffee by Ella, or a dry place to sleep during a storm and her refusing to take money. Nobody went hungry around her, said John Fells, another local. She was not only a fine-appearing woman, but a good woman. Neither one of them, meaning her and Jim, ever stole a cow, And those who say that Ella Watson slept with cowpunchers are slandering a good woman's name, end quote. So I'll ask again, why murder these two? Well, I'll make an attempt at answering that very question right after a quick word from today's sponsor. We say we want to be challenged. We say we want to hear all sides, but that's not how we act when we seek out podcasts. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and I'm crazy enough to think that we are up to the challenge. I challenge myself. I challenge my guests. I invite you in. We'll talk about such issues as masks. I mean, I know they work, but on a population level, the evidence is less than clear. Mass shootings, horrible, but they account for less than 1% of all shootings. Do we do ourselves and our society a disservice when we focus on them? These questions and more explored and challenged every day on the gist wherever you get your podcasts welcome back and well the death of cattle kate and jim probably had something to do with the 640 acres they own between them property that although legally acquired was in the middle of a big pasture that one of the big ranchers alan bothwell considered his own this acreage also controlled one mile of water along horse creek now bothwell was there before ella and jim he grazed his cattle on all that open land for years, and he didn't care for these newcomers sashaying on in and trying to claim their piece of the pie, no matter the legalities. He made more than one attempt to buy the land outright from Ella and Jim, but they refused. So when they tried to register brands, their brands were denied. Ella actually had to buy an already registered brand from somebody else. And then there's the irrigation dish that was being put in on Watson's portion of the property, probably done in retaliation to her brands being denied. If completed, this irrigation ditch would reduce the amount of water available to other ranchers like Bothwell. Cowboys were sent in to harass the couple, and finally, in late July of 1889, a range detective or inspector, one of the two, claimed that the pair had stolen cattle on the property. Cattle that Ella claimed to have bought from immigrants saying that the bill of sale was in the bank. No dice. This was all that was needed for things to come to a head. As I touched on earlier, Ella and Jim were both taken off the property, by force, taken into the wilderness, and hanged. Bothwell was arrested, along with five other men, but nothing became of it. In the end, he acquired the land of both Watson and Averell, and ran cattle on it with zero repercussions. Matter of fact, Bothwell would live and prosper for another 38 years. Guy was buying up land to the very bitter end. He died in March of 1928 at the age of 74 and purchased his last piece of property, 80 acres in Colorado, a month prior. Can't take it with you, folks. And by the way, if this entire thing is starting to sound like the plot from that movie Shane, well, you may be onto to something. I was not able to verify this, but at least one source claims that Bothwell was the inspiration behind the movie's antagonist. Now, this lynching would signal the beginning of the Johnson County War and in no time flat, the bodies began stacking up. First to go was George B. Henderson, one of Canton's buddies and a fellow detective for the WSGA. Officially, he was shot and killed on October 9, 1890, by some cowboys over a wage dispute. Unofficially, his death was considered to be an act of retaliation. While George was not named as one of the men who lynched Averill and Watson, he was very close to them who were. Eight months later, the reclusive Thomas Wagoner, would be lynched in a similar fashion as Cattle Kate and Jim. Masked men rode up to his ranch, tied him up, and took him away. A couple weeks later, his body was found still hanging. According to one paper, quote, the rope had cut through the flesh after it became rotten, and maggots held high carnival over his lifeless body. End quote. While nobody would ever be formally charged with wagoner's killing, the WSGA were suspected. Enter in Nate Champion. Born Nathan Champion in Texas in September of 1857, Nate grew up in the Round Rock area, north of Austin. And much like Frank Canton, Nate took to punching cattle as a young man, even trailing herds all the way to the railheads in Kansas before venturing even further. And at some point, old Nate ended up in Wyoming, securing a job as the foreman for the EK Ranch. Look up a picture of Nate Champion if you get a chance. Dude looked like the epitome of an Old West cowboy. There's that one picture of him sitting on a horse looking at the camera, all mustache with a bandana around his neck, heavy work gloves on, lariat close at hand, holstered revolver high on his hip. Looks like something out of a Wrangler commercial, but Champion was the real deal. Considered a crack shot with both pistol and rifle, by the time of the Johnson County War, Nate would have been in his early to mid-30s. The prime of his life and just an all-around tough guy. Definitely not a vampire though, at least I don't think so. Anyway, Nate would eventually file on his own ranch there in Johnson County and piss off the WSGA by supporting their new rivals, the Northern Wyoming Farmers and Stock Growers Association. Getting ahead of myself, though. Uh, Even before the WSGA opposition was created, someone made a move against Nate, allegedly. Story goes that he and another cowboy, Ross Gilbertson, were catching some shut-eye in a remote cabin when, early in the morning of November 1st, 1891, The door flung open and a group of men came in and opened up fire. According to Champion, the first round just barely missed his head, coming so close that the powder burned his face. He immediately raised his own pistol, which I assume he was sleeping with, and began returning fire, causing the would-be assassins to retreat. He and Gilbertson then tracked these wannabe killers and found where they laid in wait, discovering four overcoats, a pipe, three silk handkerchiefs, and a blood-covered tarp indicating that they hit at least one of them. So there's a lot of speculation around this, uh, even as to whether or not it even really occurred. Those who believe the story suspect that Frank Canton was one of the attackers. Champion himself, however, could only verifiably identify one of them, WSGA Detective Joe Elliott, who was also likely one of the same ones who lynched Thomas Wagoner a few months earlier. There was also a deputy sheriff out of Weston County named Fred Coates, who was also suspected of being involved in the Wagoner killing. Both he and Joe Elliott had warrants issued against them for attacking Nate, although the only proof that Coates was involved was his suspected involvement in the killing of Wagoner. Of this attack, Nate Champion said, quote, I am pretty well convinced that this crowd came to my cabin to kill Gilbertson and myself, but were met with the wrong kind of reception to suit them. Their intention was good enough, but they were scared off. End quote. Now, the reason I say that this attack allegedly occurred is because there's a lot of legend that's been added to it over the years. One of the biggest issues is that if it was indeed a group of veteran WSGA detectives, why were they so inept? I suppose it's possible that Champion was just that much of a badass, but he was asleep and these old boys did have the slip on him. And what about Frank Canton? You know, he wasn't exactly a novice when it came to this type of stuff. Dude had been packing a gun for the last three decades. Are we really to believe that he was so incompetent that he couldn't take out Nate Champion, even with the element of surprise? Uh, maybe. I would say that this is not likely, but then again, I'm reminded of Henry Strong, that scout from down Jacksboro way. Somebody, possibly Canton, had made several unsuccessful attempts on the man's life, each time attacking from ambush, catching Strong unaware, and each time they failed. So I don't know. I'm just tossing out options here and feel like it's important to note that not everybody is convinced this little confrontation happened exactly as Champion claimed. Also, in Frank Cannon's defense, was he the type of man who would kill somebody like that from ambush? You know, I just mentioned Henry Strong. He was never able to prove that it was Cannon behind the assassination attempts. Also, from what I can tell, Frank's reputation as a killer from back in his outlaw days does seem greatly exaggerated. And during Canton's time as sheriff, he wasn't exactly what you would call trigger happy. He was intimidating and scary, yes, but cold-blooded killer? I don't know. I will say that what happens in the months to follow might shed a little bit more light on the subject. Events are really about to speed up, and now Frank Canton is about to get accused of something far worse than Ambush and Nate Champion. Less than a month following the alleged attack of the cabin, a blacklisted young cowboy named Orley Ranger Jones left Buffalo, Wyoming, the town where Canton had lived as sheriff, with a wagon full of lumber he was going to use to construct a cabin for he and his new bride. He would never be seen alive again. Word is that the 20 something year old Bronc Buster had angry words with Frank Hess, another English-born ally of the WSGA and close friend of Frank Canton. A couple of days later, yet another blacklisted cowpoke, John A. Tisdell, also left Buffalo in a wagon on the same road taken by Ranger. He had come to town to stock up on supplies for the winter, as well as Christmas presents for his kids. He even picked up a hound dog and her pup. Now, John Tisdell wasn't as young as Ranger Jones. And although branded an enemy of the WSGA, everything in Tisdell's past paints him as a solid, hard-working family man. A former trail boss who led at least three drives out of Texas, Tisdale was also a one-time foreman of Teddy Roosevelt's Elkhorn Ranch. Hell, Roosevelt even gifted John a high chair when his first son was born. And likewise with Ranger Jones, when Tisdale left the town of Buffalo, unbeknownst to him, he was riding straight to his death. As he passed through what's now known as Haywood's Gulch, two shots rang out. The first striking in a holster Tisdale wore on his shoulder, ricocheting off and severing the jugular of one of his horses. The second would hit him in the side, killing him as he reached for his scatter gun. Whoever did the deed then led the remainder of Tisdale's team away from the road, killed all the horses, and then made off. But not without being seen. Frank Canton's own neighbor and kind of sort of friend, Charlie Bosch, saw a man that he thought was Frank Canton with a revolver in his hand, leading the wagon team off of the road. Assuming Canton was doing some sort of work for the U.S. Marshal Service and not wanting to interrupt him, Bosch simply kept on going. Moments later, he heard gunshots and saw somebody riding away on what appeared to be Canton's horse. Now, Charlie would not immediately tell the citizens of Buffalo what he witnessed, but he did tell fellow traveler Elmer Freeman when the two men met a few miles down the road and it was Freeman who ran into town to spread the news. Deputies were dispatched from Buffalo and sure enough, Tisdell was found dead along with the horses. Hell, the assassin even killed the hound dog. Only the little puppy survived. As far as Orly Ranger Jones is concerned, his body would be discovered, riddled with bullets, about a month later, just three miles from where Tisdale was murdered. A loaded rifle in the wagon next to him, in addition to his holstered revolver, indicate that Ranger's death had come as a sudden surprise. Now, maybe it's just me, but I don't think it takes a genius to figure out that both of these men were killed by the same person or persons, right? And the prime suspect, backed up by at least one eyewitness, was our very own Frank Canton. But why? You know, what would his motivation be? Okay, so if you'll remember last episode, I mentioned the rumors of Frank Canton killing an elderly couple back in Texas. Word is that Tisdale, also from Texas, knew Frank from the old days and recognized him immediately the first time the two met there in Buffalo. And what's more, Tisdale was friends with the two people that Canton had supposedly murdered. There's no way of knowing this is true, and I tend to doubt the story about Frank murdering the elderly couple, but if it was Canton who killed John Tisdale and you were looking for a reason, this could be it. And by the way, this is all assuming that these were personal killings. Both of these men were enemies of the WSGA and Frank Canton was in the WSGA's employ. He may have just simply been ordered to kill him. What's more, Bosch, the eyewitness, would later claim that Canton had threatened him to keep his damn mouth shut about the whole ordeal. So right about now, it's not looking too good for old Frank. And no matter how you slice it, badge or no badge, orders or not, this was flat-out murder. wasn't long before a bunch of blacklisted cowboys, friends of the two dead men, descended upon Buffalo looking to set things straight. At their helm, a cowboy and suspected rustler by the name of Jack Flagg. Hell, he was actually known as the King of the Rustlers. But don't forget that in Johnson County, Wyoming in the 1890s, the term rustler was synonymous with just being a small homesteader or a rancher. Unless you kowtowed to the WSGA and played ball, you were a rustler. i say what you will about Frank Canton, but the man had nerve. With Jack Flagg and the other so-called rustlers in Buffalo at the same time as he and his buddy Hess, people were expecting fireworks. And sure enough, armed and angry men were openly talking about hanging the two. Well, Frank, not one to be intimidated, went and met with Jack Flagg, along with five or six of the angry cowboys, and attempted to explain his innocence. Once he figured that none of them were buying his story, though, he simply asked that they go ahead and make formal charges against him so that he could clear his name in court. They did so, and Johnson County Sheriff Red Angus promptly arrested Frank and stuck him in that little cottage that he used to live in back when he was the law. There was an impromptu hearing on December 8th where the courts heard from Bosch, who officially explained what he saw, and Frank had his say as well, testifying on his own behalf, claiming that neither he nor his horse left Buffalo on the day in question. Finally, it was determined by the Justice of the Peace that there was not sufficient evidence to warrant a conviction before a jury, nor did he find adequate ground to hold the defendant until he could answer to district court. In other words, Frank Canton went free, for the meantime at least. He wasn't off the hook for Tisdale's murder, they just didn't have enough evidence to hold him indefinitely. And despite Buffalo being full of men who wanted him dead, despite more than one man lying in wait to ambush Canton, nobody made a move. That's just how intimidating Frank was. He also wasn't stupid, though. Uh, Frank knew if he stayed in town any longer, somebody would eventually get drunk enough to have a go at him, possibly from ambush. And nobody can stay lucky forever, right? Frank saw the writing on the wall sometime before and had sent his wife and daughters to Chicago. This was before the deaths of Tisdell and Ranger Jones. Now fearing retribution and also fearing getting locked up in prison again, Frank would leave Wyoming to join his family in the Windy City. He'd remain there most of the winter, where sadly his youngest daughter Helen would pass away after contracting diphtheria. In the meantime, Frank did make at least one trip west to Cheyenne to confer with the bosses. You know, his handlers in the WSGA about that lingering murder accusation hanging over his head. He was a loyal soldier after all, and he had done their bidding first as an inspector, then as sheriff. Finally, as a detective, if he did indeed kill Tisdale and Jones, he likely did so on WSGA orders. Now it was time for them to pony up a little bit of protection. And to their credit, they did. They hired a very prominent attorney or attorneys to defend Canton, just in case the charges against him were to be further pursued, as was predicted. And sure enough, another warrant for his arrest was issued. What's more, there was now a $5,000 bounty offered up by the Johnson County Commissioners for the arrest and conviction of Tisdale and Jones' murder. In March of 1892, Ken would be charged with first-degree murder and the death of John Tisdell, but thanks to friends in high places, Frank would not be pursued all the way over in Chicago. There was no worry about extradition, and his legal problems only existed in Wyoming, and mostly just there in Johnson County. Nevertheless, Frank's high-profile lawyers did get his bond secured, an unprecedented $30,000, which is the equivalent to nearly a million in today's money and this bond would be put up by 21 separate members of the WSGA. No longer fearing arrest, Frank Canton would return to Wyoming, and this time hell was coming with him in the form of an army of hired guns from Texas. Canton and this bunch of mercenaries would invade Johnson County with a kill list of, depending on sources, anywhere from 19 to 70 names on it. The names of men who dared defy the powerful WSGA. Some say Canton himself compiled the list and added a few names of his personal enemies, because why the hell not? If the law wasn't going to stop the so-called rustlers of Johnson County, then by God, Frank Canton would see what he could do. But you will have to wait until next week to hear what happens. So please join me next episode as we discuss the Johnson County War in full, including the death of Nate Champion, the ultimate fate of the WSGA, and a little somebody known as Tom Horn. Thanks so much for listening. Big shout-outs to everybody supporting the Wild West Extravaganza on Patreon. Reb Cotton, Brian Battles, Foz, Andrew, Christopher, Logan, Wes, Tom, Zach, Brandon K, D, Dookie Rooster, Kenneth, Vicky, Brandon M, Mark S, Bill, Ryan, Asher, Reggae, Timothy, Valverde, R. David, Man of Enchantment, Tony T, Michael, Alphonse, Everett, Momo, and of course, Skinny Dick. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you too would like to support the Wild West Extravaganza, this podcast brings value to you. If you found yourself entertained while listening, or you simply want to listen ad-free, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra. Hope you all have an amazing Thanksgiving tomorrow. I don't know about you, but I'm going to attempt to eat my weight in dressing. Green bean casserole. I might even have some pie. I don't know. All right, till next time, try not to dry to anybody driving a wagon. And please, as my friend Michael from Texas History Lessons likes to say, be nice to each other. Adios. two bagpipes and an old didgeridoo.